Hey everyone, welcome back to the 443 Security Simplified. I'm your host, Mark the Liberty, and joining me today is... Corey Nockrein, the satellites are watching me. Sorry, <laughs> I should say Corey, uh, the satellites are watching me. Nockrein. <laughs> Tinfoil hat appears to be a little too tight on his head. On a... <laughs> Where's my Faraday cage? Is it working? I thought your whole house was a Faraday cage. Just is that the FBI knocking? <laughs> on today's episode, uh, we will be covering three reports related to cybersecurity practices around the world and specifically with SMBs with at least one of them. Now uh, with that, and let's go ahead and read our way in. What are SMBs? Small-minded bobcats? Yes, exactly. Gotta watch out for those small-minded bobcats. I hope there's some good statistics so they know how to avoid the hunters. So let's start off this week with the first of three uh, reports we're going to be going through. It is report week. I guess that makes sense being early January. A lot of firms are putting out their end of 2022 report for various topics. Uh, the first one, though, is interested me because in a previous life, I was very interested and could even be described as a cryptocurrency enthusiast. I think at this point now, I'm basically the antithesis of that. I've lost all faith in cryptocurrency in its current form, at least. Aren't but... you still you're enthusiastic about some of the technology? Like I, I see the pro I still see the promise of cryptocurrency, but I agree with the not in its form. Like they, our audience have heard us talk about the downsides to decentralized currencies. So I, I don't think it will work as a fiat currency until it is centralized by a trusted organized body. But the technology behind it that makes it public and, and should make less fraud has promise. Yeah. But it's really not uh, the forms that's been taken lately. Yes, correct. That's, I guess, a fair description of my thoughts as well. And as you hinted at, unfortunately, with current implementations of cryptocurrency, there are quite a bit of fraudulent activities and as you'll see in just a bit um, illicit activities or illegal uh, monetary transfer activities as well too so there's a organization called chainalysis that every year for the past few years has published a uh, what they call the crypto crime report basically their whole business model is they they monitor and do on-chain analysis for various blockchains everything from bitcoin to ethereum uh, they've apparently been working on trying to do the same analytics on privacy-focused chains like Monero, but so far have not succeeded yet. And every year they publish their findings from just basically tracking fraudulent and crime-related transactions on these various blockchains. Uh, so their report itself comes out early February, but they posted a preview of it that was worthy of discussion uh, where they call out a few trends and stats that they already started seeing. Uh, so it starts out by saying, uh, I guess, addressing the big thousand pound elephant in the room, saying they aren't going to include transactions by several of the large firms that imploded last year, like Celsius or Three Arrows Capital or FTX, uh, because their focus is mainly on on-chain intelligence instead of off-chain, potentially fraudulent bookkeeping. And that's why, by the way, I, I would pause where I think the reason even I got interested in Bitcoin when it first came out. Yes, you and I kind of get irritated by blockchain as a buzzword, but the promise of this cryptographic ledger that is immutable, that's publicly transparent, that's cryptographically proven, 
it allows literally chain analysis to do what they do. And the types of detail in analysis you can get from the blockchain is very accurate and good because blockchains themselves, I guess there have been little technical flaws here and there that cause forking, but it's really not the blockchains that are causing the, the technical blockchain, so to speak, the problems. It's the exchange. It's the fact that there's a hundred million cryptocurrencies. None of them are controlled by a trusted entity. There's all these exchanges that pop up that allow you to transact money from one to the other, but all that transaction doesn't happen. <laughs> On a cryptographic blockchain, it happens with whatever you know exchange or or techniques they're using, and it seems to me, besides just stealing the keys from actual wallet owners, a lot of the illicit, a lot of the hacks and the fraud and the breaches are off chain by their very nature. Yeah, so like looking at FTX is a good example of that. So if you have been living under a rock for the past couple of months, uh, FTX was up until like two months ago, I think the second largest cryptocurrency exchange in the world. Uh, they sponsored a stadium down in Miami, uh, very big sponsors of a lot of Formula One teams as well, too, basically pumping out money all over the place. Apparently very big political donators as well. Um, but as a cryptocurrency exchange, their basic job, their responsibility is taking in let's say US dollar deposits from their users and allowing their users to go buy Bitcoin at a very high level. And as a user of FTX or any exchange, you have the option of keeping your cryptocurrency in a wallet under that exchange exchange's control. Uh, key benefits of that being like if you're just a uh, like a retail user, like someone that isn't intimately familiar with cryptocurrency, there's a decent chance you don't know how to set up your own wallet, and there's a decent chance you might mess it up and potentially lose all your crypto coins yourself. And so by having the exchange manage it, it's a little makes it a little easier for you and folks that, you know, bought into the hype but don't necessarily have the technical expertise, even though it is pretty low-level expertise required, but don't have the expertise to set up their own wallet. Also, by having it in the exchange, you're able to trade it almost instantly. It's like, let's say you quickly wanted to swap a bunch of Bitcoin for Ethereum. If you if the cryptocurrency exchange is managing your wallets, then you can do that effectively uh, instantly. If you manage your own wallets, you'll have to first submit a transfer into the exchange that will cost you a transfer fee uh, on the blockchain itself. And then you'll be able to swap it over to the other coin and then another transfer out to your wallet for that one too. So you can see why some folks, especially ones that do like high volume or frequent trading, might keep their coins within the exchange itself. Now, in a perfect world, uh, when you deposit one Bitcoin into your cryptocurrency exchange wallet, they will maintain that one Bitcoin in your wallet undisturbed until you go to withdraw it. Uh, unfortunately, we're not in a perfect world and businesses like to make money. And so a lot of exchanges have been using user deposits in order to make uh, investments in other areas. Uh, so maybe you, uh, you transfer in your one Bitcoin, they realize just based off history, you're probably not going to want that back for a few months. So over the course of that month, maybe they use that Bitcoin to invest in something in hopes of getting a return. By the way, to be clear, our current financial system, including banks, do this too. You know, the reasons banks are in business and we used to, I actually think banks are somewhat as a scam now because they give us no interest for keeping our money in the bank for a long period. But the bank 
you know, my local bank doesn't actually, they probably couldn't pay me out all my money in my account at one of my local banks. And when you take all their customers, they can't either. And the reason they take your money and provide all the banking services is behind the scenes, they're using your our money to make their investments. Now, they're very regulated and they're federally insured. So there's a lot of anti-fraud things to make sure they don't do crazy investments that that implode the bank, but it, it can and has happened before. It's why they have to be federally insured as well. So to be honest, it's uh, the same thing banks, real banks do. The only difference I think is we haven't regulated cryptocurrency as much, exchanges as much. I mean, an exchange, if you think about it, Mark, I, you might agree, is basically just a bank for cryptocurrency, essentially. Exactly. But yeah. you hinted at the big differentiator there. So FDIC is the one that provides insurance up to $250,000 per account, where if I have at least up to $250,000 in my, let's say, BECU credit union. Well, I guess credit unions are different. Uh, Bank of America account and Bank of My America bank is half a million, but same different. Yeah, yeah. Okay, same whatever one percent. Yeah. Uh, so <laughs> if you if you're, the bank suddenly implodes, like there's a bank run, they realize that they're insolvent and they're not able to give you your money. The FDIC will step in and uh, provide you the rest of your whatever lost funds were. That is not a thing in cryptocurrency at all. And so with FTX, going back to that story. Turns out they had made a lot of very risky bets, including transferring literally billions of dollars into a investment arm of the company, a kind of sister company called Alameda Capital, which promptly lost all of it, or at least had it locked up in uh, very uh, unfluid uh, forms of, uh, of currency. And so there was a run on FTX. They didn't have enough Bitcoin in their reserves to pay out everyone's Bitcoin they were trying to withdraw, Bitcoin being a small example of all the cryptocurrency and tokens they managed, which ultimately led to them going bankrupt uh, and folks just losing out on their money because there is no FDIC insurance for FTX. So sorry that, about the digression, by the yes. way, but that that is why on chain and that's I, I just used it as an example of why I I like blockchain and the, the fact that one day we'll have digital currency. But the very nature of why chain analysis is saying they can't really speak to that is because it's not using the promising technology. This is all behind the scenes stuff. And that's why it really comes down to more trust. Who do you trust to to and, and can we really trust a decentralized unmanaged currency that's not really under any any organization? And to round out this uh, this tangent, uh, after the implosions last, last year of Celsius and FTX and a few other investment firms, uh, one big topic that started coming up was uh, proof of reserves. So now cryptocurrency exchanges are publishing the hot wallet and cold wallet addresses that they use to store at all of their customers' currency. It's like if you go to Coinbase right now, somewhere on their blog, you can find a link to all of the wallets that Coinbase owns. Um, and in theory, you could match up all of the deposits that they are currently the custodians uh, for, custodians for, and the amount of Bitcoin that they have in other cryptocurrencies they have in these wallets. Now, that said, one thing they aren't publishing is their debt, their liabilities. And so if they have used some of that potentially for other uh, transactions or bets, it might be uh, their, their proof of reserves might not actually match up one-to-one -one with all their deposits. Um, but if I... You know, we try not uh, call out individual companies or uh, tout for specific ones. But one thing you as an American citizen, like Coinbase is a good example of a cryptocurrency exchange you probably could trust because A, 
they're a public company, so all of their financial records are entirely public and regularly updated as required by the SEC. And you can match that up with their uh, proof of reserve wallet addresses too. And aside from some international firms, or in comparison to other international firms where they're not public, their books are all secret. And so, yes, they may publish a bunch of wallets that have $6 billion worth of Ethereum and Bitcoin and all that, but you don't know how much debt they actually have or liabilities they have on the books too. So anyways, tangent aside, uh, with a chain analysis, chain analysis's report, they're not going to include that whole FTX and all that meltdown as fraudulent or criminal activity because all that was off the blockchain. Instead, they focused on transactions that actually occur on the blockchain. So first and foremost, they pointed out that even though the cryptocurrency market had a significant downturn in 2022, so the quote unquote value of Bitcoin and Ethereum and the like all plummeted. Uh, illicit transaction volume rose for a second year in a row to an all time high of $20 billion. Uh, so they also noted this is the lower bound estimate and it will continue to grow as they find more addresses associated with these illicit transactions. Um, but even though value is down, when you look at the total value of transactions associated with illicit activity, it's up. Um, a few key stats there, 44% of 2022's illicit transactions came from activity associated with sanctioned entities. So going back to April 2022, the U.S. Office of Foreign Asset Control, OFAC, sanctioned a Russian-based cryptocurrency exchange called Garantex. Now, just because we sanctioned it doesn't mean that cryptocurrency exchange disappears. Like They're still op operating within Russia and Russian-friendly countries. It's just if you are a uh, company or individual under the jurisdiction of the United States, then if you do any transactions with this cryptocurrency exchange, you're going to really tick off OFAC um, and potentially be liable to fines or sanctions of your own as well, too. Um, so... By the, by the way, one thing to note, I just wanted uh, I, I wanted you to finish the Russian part, but it's an all-time high. But the one other thing they say is they think it's the tip of an iceberg. Like the all-time high is even bigger. Re remember, the way they track this is everything's public on these blockchains they analyze. But the way they track is they have to know of the illicit wallet to follow it, whether it's a sanctioned wallet because of guard text, whether it's a malware actor's wallet. And they openly point out there's probably many other wallets that are illicit that they don't know about. So it's they I think they showed actually bit I think they even mentioned that like last year's uh, their their report that they shared early last year for 2021 is higher now than it was before. But yeah, anyways, so let's talk about how the sanction ones rose too. Yeah. In January of 2022, when they showed the 2021 report, it was like 15 billion worth of uh, illicit transactions. And now when they're looking back and revisiting 2021, it's like 18 or 19 or so. So like you said, yeah. As that's just because they're learning of new wallets. Yeah. Um, so interesting. So that the whole sanctioned cryptocurrency exchange thing was actually a bit of a an outlier that kind of skewed the results if you look at it. So sanctioned related transactions rose 152,000% from 2021 to 2022 which is just statistically astronomical. Kind yeah. of tiny outlier, not a big deal. Ignore anything there. Who cares? 
Because basically, like this exchange and other sanctioned exchanges continue to operate. And it's just now they are tracking that as illicit because it is illegal to interact with those exchanges in the United States. And in fact, if you remove uh, those sanctioned related transactions, nearly every single stat other than illicit, uh, other illicit transactions decreased with the exception of stolen funds, which had a small 7% increase when it comes to the different categories. Um, they noted that crypto scams or uh, transactions related with crypto scams were down, which makes sense because in general, like they're going to generate less revenue during downward markets or bear markets, as you call them, uh, because users in general, they're more pessimistic and less likely to believe one of these get rich quick scams uh, where they would promise you know, high returns. Uh, it just it doesn't make sense when the whole market is tanking. Uh, big standout in the cybersecurity world, though, is they saw a 40% drop in ransomware payments year over year. So pause there for a second. We've solved the ransomware problem. It's on the decline, 40%. <laughs> I, I doubt it, but actually they're not the, I, I don't want to uh, spoil things that are coming up, but I actually think there's a lot of uh, decline, people reporting decline in ransomware payments. I was gonna wait till we got to maybe the third report, but I, one little thing I was thinking about as we were going over these reports, Mark, is uh, this is one of two that Russian-Ukraine conflict is mentioned. And I don't want to point too many fingers at Russia. And, and criminal malware is different than state-sponsored things. But we all do know that uh, Russia is kind of a blind eye place for criminal malware. And one thing I was thinking is the Ukraine war is definitely affecting uh, I, I think that the last report we're, we're going to talk about, uh, could criminals in Russia just have other things on their mind be, or, or maybe being blocked in different ways of doing their job as easily, their, their malicious or drafted job as into easily, a war or drafted into a, a cyber war. And, and, and that is unfair because there's definitely US-based, Brazilian-based, uh, obviously North Korea. I, 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 Russia's not the only place there's malicious threat actors doing ransomware. But I got to tell you, our, our Eve, most of the ones we've seen that are making it big lately really seem to be Russian-based. So I'm curious if maybe the Ukraine conflict is actually negatively affecting the, the cyber actors that reside in Russia. That would make sense as a theory. Like I, I could see it a couple ways. Like when the war starts and you've got a lot of individuals in Russian that are very like nationalistic and like proud of their happy for their country. We saw at the start of the war a lot of like hacktivism and other activity targeting folks that were other countries that were speaking negatively of Russia. And so like I could see a spike at that point, but then as it kind of drags on and you actually lose population to literally getting drafted into physical warfare to um, potentially crackdowns. It's like, yeah, I could see it. And at the end of the day, they have to get their digital illicit gains to actual money in their country. So it could even just be their, you know, they the, the money they've earned from ransomware last year, they're having trouble even turning that into cash or something because of sanctions. I, yeah. I mean, uh, we're both speculating. I'm making stuff up. I'm speculating. But you will see in all of these reports that, you know, or at least in a couple of them, Russia is mentioned. And uh, they're just one of the top ransomware threat actors as far, again, maybe not as a state-sponsored one, but a lot of ransomware crime is from Russia. Exploit.in is one of the best places to get to, which is a Russian underground forum. If you want to, to learn about ransomware, get ransomware as a service, et cetera. So 
<laughs> if you would like sense. to get ransomware as a service, please go visit exploit.in. <laughs> have to pay some money or, or do a really bad deed to let get let in. But uh, And by the way, if you're a US citizen and you pay that money, you might be breaking some sanction laws. <laughs> yep. Take off OFAC that way too. So what like what other factors do you think might be for the that 40% drop in payments? Like my mind goes to uh, to cyber insurance because we've seen cyber insurance providers being less apt to actually paying out extortion demands now. I wouldn't say they stopped entirely, but for the most part, like it's dropped drastically. And they've increased compliance, meaning they're, I, I think everyone has heard you and I mention our prediction from now three or four years ago that they would have issues because they're paying ransomware. I was always kind of pissed at them as using payment very easily. It's not that I don't get the business decision that sometimes, or, or the life-threatening decision to sometimes pay, but it seemed to me that cyber insurers paid quite easily right up front as a way, and they lost money due to it. I mean, you saw the past three years of cyber insurance, and that's why the, the premiums, the rates, and the compliance requirements have skyrocketed because they were the idiots paying. Sorry, cyber insurers, I love your, your service, but it was a bad choice. Don't pay money if you don't have long-term actuary tables. I think you statistic people should know that. So I, I, I agree with you, Mark. That makes a lot of sense too. Yeah, because I mean, it's one of those, like look into a, like the car space. Like if you get in an accident and you get paid off for insurance, like it's not gonna encourage you to go crash your car more. But in the case of this, if you suffer a ransomware incident and you go pay out insurance, like it's going to encourage those threat actors to do more ransomware attacks. By the way, it also encourages the small business that didn't have good enough security controls that I don't really have to worry too much about it because my insurance company took care of it. So I'm just going to stick with my my bad security, you know, I, I, I'm not saying all small businesses this way, but why, if your insurance just takes care of it for you, why would you try to prevent it too, too hard? You know, unlike the car, which you need to get place to place, security is kind of an added thing that you have to pay for just to, in the event of protecting yourself from something. And maybe their strategies were the insurers before. But by the way, if you are that company, you are due for a rude awakening because the insurers are going to make you spend money or not insure you. Uh, they have higher compliance for sure. So I think, yeah, there's a, a lot of possibility. And one other big, before we exit from this report, one other big like blind spot on it actually is that they haven't found a way to track transactions on privacy-focused chains like Monero. Which so is company, one of the most popular ones used by these threat actors. The company was actually awarded a contract by the U.S. government to try and find a way to track transactions on Monero. And as it stands right now, that contract has not been fully paid out for a successful uh, finding yet. So you can interpret that as they haven't actually found a way to do it yet. Uh, otherwise, they would have been paid out the full amount for that contract. So, and that makes sense. Like a lot of cryptocurrency, not a lot. Some cryptocurrency chains are specifically designed not just to mask who sent what to who, but also the amount that was sent. That's like where Monero comes in. And as you just said, a lot of illegal activity is using Monero now because of some of those privacy protections. Bitcoin, on the other hand, completely open ledger. You can see exactly which wallet sent exactly how much to another one. You may not know who owns those wallets until they ultimately cash out and you can tie a name to it from subpoenaing and exchange. Uh, but with Monero, you could potentially hide the entire transaction itself. So it'll be interesting to see if they find a way to break that. I know like 
the FBI and just the U.S. government in general is very interested in finding ways to track transactions across privacy chains like Monero. Um, but and maybe the sanctions. I mean, as they start to regulate cryptocurrency, maybe Monero becomes one that becomes illegal to use in some countries if they catch you using. Who, who knows? That is honestly where I think that they're probably going to go with it. Like it, the U.S. isn't like fundamentally against doing things like that, where if they can't find a way to secure it or have visibility into it, they'll just straight up block it. And yes, you can't block Monero, the blockchain technology, but you can absolutely throw Americans that use it into jail and find them uh, if they go out of compliance with whatever, whatever your regulations are. And so that's my thought in the next five years or so where we'll probably end up with some blockchains being relatively okay, uh, stamped by the US government, the ones that have visibility in, and other ones being potentially outlawed. So Although the flip side of that is it has to go through Congress and a lot of libertarians do want the privacy of their own stuff too. So knowing how great our Congress works together, <laughs> maybe we will have the wild west in cryptocurrency for decades to come. Let's and remember, not. the United States themselves are working on a centralized digital currency right now, too. Uh, so like you hinted at the very start of this, it's not a fully decentralized blockchain like Bitcoin is. It would be a centralized one managed by the government, but still effectively immutable and a free way to transfer or uh, monitor transactions on it. So. And just because it's centralized, if they do the cryptography right, they could still kind of make some of the at least ledger activities transparent and public too, which would be good because yep. it actually would, even though it's a U.S. controlled digital currency, it still gives you open transparency to the world if they design it the way they should. I, for one, am more than excited for anything that finally gets rid of ACH transfers between bank accounts that take three days to clear and cost a million dollars. <laughs> It'll be nice when we can just use a, a digital currency in order to do that sort of activity. But that one is still very much in the works. Um, so moving on to our second report of the day, uh, the security and software firm Datto just released their 2023 state of the ransomware report uh, with findings from a survey of 3000 IT professionals from small and mid-sized businesses in eight countries. And just wanted to go through a few of the key high-level takeaways that they saw from the report. And some of them are pretty interesting standouts. Uh, so first, one-fifth of all, I so remember these are all SMB-focused, uh, one-fifth of all IT budget is dedicated to security, and many are seeing increases in budgets. So basically, for the typical SMB, a fifth of their IT budget is dedicated towards security, uh, which is... Interesting, I have to imagine that's higher than it has been in the past. In fact, 47% of SMBs plan to invest more in network security in the coming years as well too. I feel like a lot of this is gonna be driven by uh, not just compliance, but uh, cyber insurance as well too, where you are required to have certain baselines and if you don't have them, you run a very large risk of your company going out of business because you're not able to get insurance if something were to happen. I really think insurance has become the new PCI because the thing with some of the regulations that exist and do force companies to do security they may not have done otherwise, HIPAA, PCI, Sarbox, not all companies fall under that. You know, Sarbox is only if you're public, HIPAA is only if you're healthcare, PCI is only if you take credit cards, which you think PCI certainly touches the most companies. 
But with with channel with, with the way sales goes through tiers nowadays, there's actually a huge amount of companies that never have to deal with credit cards directly. So PCI doesn't help them much. But insurance is something everyone needs. So a hundred percent mark. I really do think insurance is one of the driving factors to increasing security budgets for every type of company period. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, they noted that over 50% of SMBs have implemented anti-malware and email spam protection with network and cloud security as top areas plan for investment in the next year. That's good. I'm a little disappointed in the under 50% that have not implemented any anti-malware protections on their networks. That sounds that like a very <laughs> low-hanging fruit that you could potentially <laughs> knock out. Said 37% of respondents run IT security vulnerability assessments three or more times per year. And that's a lot. Uh, well, actually, that's probably internal. I, 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 I mean, because we know that we run them weekly <laughs> in right. automated fashion. But so I immediately went to external. So actually, assuming these aren't external, three may not be enough, in my opinion. <laughs> I yeah, that was my first take on this too. Is that if this is, it means that they don't have a ongoing vulnerability management program, and it feels very ad hoc, and that's not the correct way to run patch management and vulnerability management in your organization. And there's so many automated tools. We're not going to buzzword market all of the available options, but there there's so many that are cheap enough for SMBs, and then it actually you get a report every week. So you know the only additional stuff you you may, might have your own internal red team that does a special human assisted one and maybe that makes sense to do every quarter or once a year and definitely an external one getting a third party to validate to make sure you haven't missed anything that you haven't added to your your va automated program is is helpful once a year as well but you should be you should have some automated system doing the low-hanging automated scanning in my opinion every week why not? It's yeah. free once you have the tool. Exactly. It's not, not disruptive either when you set it up correctly. 69% of SMBs have cyber insurance and 34% of the remainder are likely, highly likely to get it in the next year. Around 70%, that's actually pretty good numbers, especially when you consider what renewals are driving in terms of cybersecurity requirements then too. I'm, I'm not surprised at being high. In fact, I would think it would be a lot because I, I, I suspect a lot of SMBs were using cybersecurity insurance in the way I was talking. They haven't invested in security defense, but insurance, because they are just banking on, they won't be the one to be hit, but then insurance is their backup plan. So I I, I would expect even an SMB to really have heavily weighted insurance, but I could see that number going lower because what's happening now is when they come to renew with their insurance provider, the insurance provider who used to ask them five questions is now sending them a 400 question survey to asking them all the controls and, and how often they scan and they might be losing their insurance if they don't get the work. Not even just the survey. Sometimes the insurance provider will just straight up go out and test a lot of it themselves. Absolutely. Too. And they can. They I, I don't like the way insurers do it. I, I, for legal reasons, they can't just automatically pen test you in an active way that you might be doing in your vulnerability assessment program. They have to use these passive services where they do domain intelligence and they, but yes, you're exactly right. They get, they have these passive reports that they just send to you that you may not have realized they even started for you. Uh, until you came to renew and they say, here's all your problems. Why aren't these fixed? Which honestly, aside from the fact that they're probably not fixed because there's no resources to fix them, it's nice that they're providing that service and pointing it out though. 
It should. I get a little technically irritated about the passive ones because right. I feel like uh, I've seen the insurer blame us for a vulnerability that was in a URL shortener. And uh, <laughs> anyone hacking that wouldn't affect us at all other than the shortened URL wouldn't redirect to us. So they don't seem to be smart about being able. They, they may not have the expertise internally or or to, to realize what they should remove from the report because it's a clear false positive. But I agree. It's something I think it's smart of insurers to do it. And it's a good service for the company. I mean, if the company should have had that report by before they even got insured and, and known what they needed to fix in the first place. So agree with you mostly. I just think the insurance agencies need to get more mature about weeding out false positives from some of the things I've seen sent to us. That, that's fair. Uh, continuing on the insurance track, 42% of SMBs that have cyber insurance think it's extremely likely that they will experience a ransomware attack in the next year, while only 16% of those without insurance feel the same. So my interpretation <laughs> is, if you feel like you're going to get hit with ransomware, you probably get cyber insurance. If you feel like you're not going to get hit with ransomware, you probably don't care. It's interesting. There's people that don't have insurance and don't care, man. They're... I hope ransomware is really going down because when they get hit, they're going to get hit the hardest. 100%. Uh, let's see. So when it comes to recovery plans, 32 or 30% of SMBs believe they have a best in class recovery plan in place. And 52% think they've got an average one. I think that 52% having at least some form of recovery plan is pretty good for SMBs at least. Yeah, we've been kind of cynical of, I mean, everyone has backup in some form or say they do, but the the key is a sufficient one. We've we've talked many times about the fact that backups were never as good as the people thought they had, and that's why ransomware is effective. Uh, so these numbers being relatively low, I mean, we spend a lot of time on backup and business continuity and disaster recovery, and I'm still not satisfied. And I, I have a high a suspicious feeling we do better than 95% of the SMBs out there. So. Uh, I'm not surprised that people are a little less confident of backup. I will say I, I do think, uh, you know, I, I do believe even small business has improved lately because everyone's been talking about backup the last five years. So all this, you know, the whole idea that you didn't realize you had to test your backup is something that even a small business knows. So hopefully they have been investing there and making it better and better, which is why they believe they have best in class now. Yep, hopefully. And then rounding out the uh, the key stats, uh, when it comes to which cybersecurity frameworks respondents were using, it's actually a pretty even spread across the board. 34% uh, were using CIS, 30% were using CMCC, 27% were using COBIT, and 22% were using NIST. Which is, I, I would have figured one would stand out over the other maybe, but it's this even. defines my feeling about frameworks. I don't give a, there's lots of people that have strong opinions about which one. I don't. <laughs> I mean, just the fact one. that they became a big, yes, just pick one and use one. Security should be boring. It's a list of procedures that you just have to follow. And all these frameworks are trying to outline and put in separate you know, sections, 18 different controls or whatever. They're just trying to make it easier to understand the different sections and have procedures around all of them. And most of the advice in all of them are pretty much the same. They're worded differently. They might have a different number. They might put, you know, DOP in this area. You know what I mean? They all have tiny little differences, but they're all ultimately the same darn thing. There's not, 
I haven't gone through them in the depth that maybe a, a framework expert who really recommends frameworks has. But at the end of the day, especially for SMBs, pick one and use it. I just I, I don't care which it is because the ones that have made a name for themselves have merit. And as long as you follow the procedure, as long as you audit it, as long as you do the annual reviews to make sure you are doing the things the framework says and they'll they'll work. They'll make you more secure. Yeah. Either way, it's good to see SMBs are taking security seriously. And that was the overall theme of the report is that it does seem like maturity in that space for SMBs is increasing in the years. It's good. It definitely has to. I, I maybe maybe SMBs are believing the fact that they aren't immune just because they think they're a small company. Yep. Unfortunately, threat actors will steal any fruit they see, and the lowest hanging fruit is always the most appealing. That's a yes. Very well said. Uh, now moving on to the third and final report of the week. Uh, last week, Recorded Future released their 2022 Payment Fraud Intelligence Report, uh, where they went over a bunch of highlights and trends in financial fraud and cybercrime revolving mostly around payment cards. Um, so lots of numbers to throw out here. First off, 45.6 million card not present records were posted on dark web carding shops in 2022, which was actually down 24% from the year prior. So card not present being like magstripe data, uh, or more specifically, well, numbers. It can, happen. it can happen on online purchases, even numbers with cards and, that uh, are chip like and expiration pin. accounts. Yep. Yeah. yeah. Um, they noted, though, that the drop was almost certainly the result of Russia's early 2022 crackdown on cybercrime and then their subsequent full scale invasion in Ukraine, which, as you hinted at earlier in the podcast, makes sense because a lot of these carding forums are hosted, run, and used primarily by folks in Russia or Russian speaking countries uh, in Eastern Europe. They said 13.8 million card present payment card records were posted on carding shops in 2022, which was down 62% since 2021. Now, while the whole Russia situation probably had some factor in that, they also pointed out that, that there's been a steady decline in card present compromises because instead of people using Magstripe, there's been a pretty good rising adoption of more secure in-person payments like EMV. chip plus pin. Yep. Makes it significantly more difficult to compromise way, one of EMV those cards. By the way, EMV is just, I won't define the acronym, but it's chip and pin, like Mark said. Yep. Uh, so they noted they found 1,520 unique malicious domains involved in MageCart infections, impacting 9,290 unique e-commerce domains. MageCart being that malware, uh, the usually JavaScript-based payment card skimming malware that you see implanted on not just small, but also some larger um, e-commerce sites as well. I think, what was it? British Airways got nailed by it a couple of years back um, for their checkout portal. And it's hit quite a few traditional e-commerce sites as well. Um, they found 20.5 million primary account numbers posted as plain text or images on various resources, including dark web forums, paste bins, and social media. Basically, people's credit cards are being thrown out there in the wild for a free to get. Uh, they noted that uh, within the marketplaces and forums that they monitor, there seems to be a very heavy focus on bypassing protections offered by the 3D secure protocol um, and increased discussions on abusing customer service call centers as a means to facilitate attacks. So 3D secure, you've probably encountered it if you bought something online from like an international shop is where I tend to see it most. 
sometimes more just uh, high cost purchases. It's that little bit of extra authentication or authorization you have to jump through when making a purchase, maybe entering your like a PIN that you set up for your Visa or American Express card, maybe just another form of MFA, like a text message or an email you have to accept. But basically, it's 3D Secure is the protocol that facilitates that extra step instead of just accepting the card number and uh, expiration details in your address and running it through like that. And so that's designed to make it so if someone were to steal your card, like they still have to get, it's basically MFA for credit card payments. And as we're seeing with multi-factor authentication and, uh, and authentication attacks where they're social engineering their ways around it, it makes sense that they would use social engineering of say like the customer service call center to try and get around this protocol as well too. You could imagine a situation where they're trying to use a card, they call up Visa and then try and social engineer them into approving the transaction, pretending to be the actual owner of the card. Um, they said they monitored 21 different card checker services, uh, which abused just shy of 3,000 unique merchants associated with 660 unique merchant identification numbers. So a card checker service is basically a service either set up or found by cyber criminals where you can quickly check to see if a card number that you have is valid and usable before you actually go carry out fraud. And uh, they actually posted a whole like life cycle description uh, within their report. They showed the life cycle from a mage cart infection to actually stealing information. Basically the threat actor, one threat actor will use mage cart to skim payment card information They'll post that for sale online. That data is ultimately purchased by someone on the underground marketplace. They'll take it, go check a card checker service. If it works, they'll go drain it and try and purchase whatever they can uh, flip using fraudulent transactions. And then if they're able to get enough metadata about that victim, they might even try and just do a complete account takeover of their account to allow them to continue enacting fraudulent uh, activity. So overall, Payment card related purchases and sales on underground markets were down, uh, but largely because of conflicts in some of the key locations that tend to fuel them. I will say like chip plus pin really does seem to be helping. And I, for one, am finally glad to have cards that support it. So when I go overseas to Europe, the uh, bartenders don't look at me like an idiot when I ask them to go swipe my card instead of just inserting it into the machine. I guess that hasn't been an issue for a few years now since the U.S. really started switching over, but it is way more convenient. And crap, even those NFT or not NFT, uh, NFC payments are really convenient as well, too. I agree. I can't wait till the U.S. gets rid of the mag stripe entirely and goes to chip and pin instead of chip and signature. Uh, I guess that will take restaurants and stuff having readers so you can actually have a pin instead of, I, I mean, the chip, by the way, chip and signature is still much better than MagStripe alone. There, There is still a, a uh, validation going on between their reader behind you or whatever, but it, it takes actually having them being able to bring pins, a uh, pin machine to you very easily for pure chip and pin. But yeah, I... Like uh, five years ago, Mark, I think we talked a lot about credit card fraud as one of the big things in in, in uh, the threat landscape, one of the things a business had to protect against and one of the pieces of data that you really have to protect. But ever the year probably knows this for the past decade, but ever since chip and pin started working, or at least chip and signature started coming here in the US, uh, 
I actually don't pay much attention to Carter forms. That said, they, you know, this is always cat and mouse. One day a super smart, you know, not the script kitty threat actor, but some dude is going to some researcher level assembly god is going to find some cryptographic weakness and, and figure out a way to crack EMV. And then maybe we'll have to think about it again. But right now, credit card fraud's not the top of my mind in cybercrime. That said, so card not present is still a bit of a risk and that if they get your number and information and your, your account details, there's a chance that you could still have card not present fraud against you. So uh, like recommendations there. Um, I would say there's so many mechanisms though, Mark, like all the cards I have email me on every card not present transaction. They have Yuba going on behind the scenes. Yuba stands for User and Entity Behavioral Analytics. And that's why even when I am making a big purchase from an airport, I get declined and have to tell American Express, oh no, that or I, at least they send me a text message and I have to type yes and try again to be undeclined because they're paying attention. They, they have background things too to try to help with the not present fraud. You know, behavioral analytics will never be perfect at, at helping make sure this looks like a purchase Corey would make. But uh, it, it, they, I respect banks and credit cards, cybersecurity more than many because they are so targeted and they're ultimately the ones that lose money. Like if you have credit card fraud, usually you call them reported as fraud. And while, you know, your credit report may go down a little and uh, for the most part, they pay for it if it really was fraud. So I, they're doing a decent job. You're, you're technically right. Card not present is the main avenue of attack nowadays. Uh, but even there, I feel more comfortable than I did three years ago just by the pure amount of emails I get from the damn card companies every time I make an online purchase. Yep, that's a very good point. And who knows, maybe sometime in the future we'll finally have implants in our arms to purchase everything through a little uh, NFC scanner tied to our laptop. This is why Biden wants his chips in your babies. <laughs> I thought the COVID vaccine gave me a chip that maybe I can oh, use yeah. for uh, Bill Gates. Now. That's why Bill Gates did it, man. He did it, Mark. <laughs> Those chips. A, nanobots. It's a, a nanobot in that syringe. Totally. Oh, man. We, we can't solve a, the battery problem, but we do know how to put a nanobot in a tiny syringe to chip you and track you everywhere in the world. Yep. And by the way, forget your cell phone, which already does that and you use every day and apparently don't seem to be concerned with. It's really that vaccine you have to worry about, not your cell phone. That is a good place to end before we get into trouble. <laughs> <laughs> hey, everyone. Thanks again for listening. As always, if you enjoyed today's episode, don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe. If you have any questions on today's topics or suggestions for future episode topics, you can reach out to us on Twitter. Still, I think it's still there. I'm at XORRO underscore. Corey's at SecAdept. And the both of us are at hashtag the 443 podcast. Thanks again for listening, and you will hear from us next week. Make sure to send all your bad reviews to the chief customer service twit at Twitter. I'm sure he'll appreciate it. <laughs>